Talk Money is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. <coughs> For updates, further breakdowns, and past episodes of this podcast, sign up at thetalkmoney.com. If you enjoy our podcast, help us get the word out. Write a review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to help us reach more ears. And now you can sign up for our newsletter, where we curate the best money topics of the week from across the internet. It's quick, informative, and most importantly, fun. Sign up at thetalkmoney.com slash newsletter. Hey, everyone. I'm Mesh, and welcome back to the Talk Money Weekly, where we talk about current business events paired with our newsletter. It's the last episode of the year, and I'm wishing all you, my friends, a happy, happy holidays. Today's episode, stocks, bonds, and crypto. What do all these things have in common? That's what we talk about on today's episode with my good friend, Renick Paley. Renick and I were all business partners. We ran a fund together. Renick has an amazing background. He worked at a public equities fund. He worked at a credit fund with me. He's now a VC and working in crypto. There's not that many people that understand the intricacies of the public markets, the bond markets, the economy, business, VC, crypto, you name it, and can tie all those things together. Renick is one of those guys, aka I like to call him Johnny Bravo. He's going to hate that name, but the guy's a stud, and he's one of the greatest cartoon characters to ever live. Remember Johnny Bravo from Cartoon Network? Well, that's Renick Paley, except like super, super smart Johnny Bravo, but he's just as hunky as the guy. In our interview today, we do a market recap going into the end of the year. What is happening with the stock market? What is happening with the bond market? What does inflation have to do with all those things? What is going on with the crypto markets? How all those things are tied in? And what does the government plan to do about all this? And how should we be thinking about the new year and everything that we should be expecting to come? So I'm really happy to do this episode. Renick is going to be joining us as a recurring guest to do market deep dives like this. I hope you enjoy. Let's get to the interview. Renick, my man, welcome back to the podcast. I don't think we've actually had you back on since we originally did this at the start of the pandemic to talk about the stock market. And so it's nice full circle to have you back. I hope you come back as a recurring guest because you are my go-to, not only stock market expert, but you're also following the crypto markets as well. And I'm hoping to talk about both of those things together. Thanks for having me. Great to be back. So a lot of uncertainty as we're ending the year when it comes to the markets, both the stock market and the crypto markets. But let's get started with the stock market first. What is creating this volatility? Is it a mix of the COVID variant worries? Is it inflation? Is it just the end of the year and no one knows what's happening next year? Or earnings have been disappointed? Or we just had this really big run-up. I would love to just get your thoughts on where we are right now and what's causing some of this activity. Yeah, I think it probably is a combination of all those things. It's easy to try and look at market volatility and try and ascribe some reason for it, but it's impossible, obviously, to know exactly why prices are moving. But I think, you know, traditionally, there's some selling towards the end of the year or people positioning for taxes. But I think the two main themes that are at least being discussed around the market today, obviously, there's a lot of other things going on that could impact prices. But the two sort of overarching thoughts are one, COVID and two, inflation. And so, it's kind of interesting to see that prices fell when the new COVID variant was introduced or broadly described. And I think that's a bit interesting because if you look at what happened 
the last go around with COVID, or at least when the lockdowns really first happened, there was an immediate plunge in prices, but then they rallied, you know, all the way through the year. It was an incredible ascent. And I think, you know, obviously some of that had to do with stimulus, but if you look at particular stocks in the market, some of them were viewed to be huge beneficiaries of COVID. And I think Zoom is the perfect example and Amazon and some other companies. And so it's interesting to see that tech has been selling off for quite some time now since the summer of 2021. And I think people could say, well, that's the COVID reversal trade, that the world's going to go back to normal. And as a result, you know, some of these tech companies are not going to have these you know, temporarily boosted earnings. But what's interesting about that is that you would then think, well, if Omicron comes out, COVID is here to stay, we're going to have another six months of this and lockdowns. Well, then you would think that those tech stocks would rally again. But that hasn't been the case, at least yet. Do you think that's based on the fact that this is now our third time seeing this? We had the variant that came in last time. We've kind of gotten used to. I mean, New York right now, it's pretty normal. People are out and about. Bars are packed. Restaurants are packed. Theaters are busy. And people are still working from home. But it's now this balance of New variant, yeah, don't really give a shit. Um, I'm just going to continue on with my daily routine. But like certain things are affected, like a Peloton stock, which is like, okay, I'm going back to the gym. Stock is down 75% mm-hmm. versus like an Amazon or some of these other ones that seem to stay in the groove. Yeah, I mean, I think there are other factors at play with like the Peloton thing, which was, you know, there was some narrative around that company that everyone was going to be working out from home for the foreseeable future. And it was, you know, this thing that was initiated by COVID, but was going to be much more sticky, kind of like work from home. And then I think what people realize is actually people want to go to the gym. And so Peloton wasn't going to be able to participate in sort of this new world of lifestyle in the same way that maybe a Zoom would or that Amazon would. So, you know, some things are sticking and some things aren't. And I think you can see that happening now in the variation of returns from these different stocks. But it's interesting. Yeah, we. this has been now the third time that this has happened. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about markets at the end of the day is you never really know how they're going to react. Maybe a pretty similar recurrence of something that's happened recently and still there's a different outcome. But I think maybe we should talk about inflation too, because I think that's the difference. That's the real new factor at play here than maybe a year ago or at the beginning of the pandemic when we had other variants come out, you know, first Delta and the original lockdown. And so I think the inflation discussion is intriguing because a lot of people have been saying for quite some time, you know, since 2008, since the initial introduction of quantitative easing and and pretty aggressive monetary policy implementation by the Fed, that we are going to have inflation. You can't just go out and print money infinitely without having inflation. And to date, that has not actually been the case. You know, we've had very historically low inflation for a couple decades now and decade and a half. And the reason for that is, I would say, is primarily because of technology. Technology is a, an inherently deflationary factor. And the reason for that is with demand staying flat, or if you assume demand is flat, with technology, you're able to create more supply of things for the same cost. In other words, productivity goes up. And so if you're able to create more of something, supply and demand dynamics allow that price to actually fall. And so if you think about 
pretty much every industry thinking about the Western world for a second. In every industry, we've seen a decline in inflation-adjusted prices for things. You know, if you think about what a computer costs today and what you can get out of it, you know, the performance that's built into that computer, it's a perfect example of something that, you know, the consumer wins. These things are getting less expensive in real terms relative to other things, and they're better. There's really only a couple of industries where we're actually seeing consistent inflation, and that's healthcare and education and real estate. And so cost of living, you know, either renting or buying. But real estate's kind of different than healthcare and education because it's a capital asset and healthcare and education aren't. But so with that backdrop, now we've had actual inflation. So the actual CPI print has come out and it's been, you know, it's spiked. Well, and that means things like everything from our food costs or travel costs have gone up or inputs of like really anything that we purchase. They've all gone up because the costs have gone up and therefore we, we have to pay more as a result. That's right. Or at least they've gone up relative to where they were last year. So inflation is it's tracked on a year over year basis across a basket of goods. So trying to say, what are the things that Americans buy, you know, the normal person buys on a regular basis and comparing the price in dollars today to what it was 365 days ago. And so we've seen that number spike. Recently, it was as high as mid-single digits when, you know, over the last few years, it's been 1% to 2%, even lower than that in some cases. And so the question is, well, why? And people kind of look at that and say, well, aha, finally, you know, inflation is increasing because we printed so much money last year. You know, there's some statistic floating around that says that 30% of U.S. dollars in existence were printed last year or in 2021, you know, over the last 12 months. And so some people will say, of course, we have inflation. And I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. So what we have is a, a combination of things. We have a limited supply right now as a result of the world reacting to COVID. And so because of that, we're not able to produce as much of the things as people want. And so that creates some inflation. At the same time, we do have an increase in demand for certain things. And part of that demand is a result of stimulus. So people actually having money going into their pockets in one way or another, right? There are multiple forms of stimulus. Receiving a check from the federal government, which we did during the pandemic, is not the only form. You know, there's reduction. In, there are eviction moratoriums. There are student loan forgiveness. So there are other forms of, of stimulus that are less direct. And so that all sort of allows people to shift their spending from what would have been an expense to them now into new demand. But as I said earlier, technology will solve the supply-demand imbalance. There are very few things that we won't be able to rebalance and actually slow inflation, in my view. Over a period of like, oh, we're talking, this is more of a 12 to 36-month issue, and over the next three to five years, these problems will be solved? I think it will abate more quickly than that. Yeah, I, I, it depends on what the good is, right? So, for example, certain... Food has latency. How long does it take to plant and grow these things? You know, food, we're not really seeing that much inflation in, except for certain, you know, sub-food groups like certain meats and things. But really, for the most part, what will happen is that supply will come back on, stimulus will start to go away, and then the inflation will abate, in my view. I don't see this as being a 
persistent issue, you know, that now there's so much money floating around that prices are going to keep accelerating. But that's in most consumer goods. I think where we will continue to see inflation are in asset prices, which is, you know, I mentioned a minute ago about real estate. So as we've seen, U.S. real estate prices have really rallied a lot and so have stocks. And so will basically every other type of capital asset. And that is basically where we're going to see inflation happening most. And is that a result of what? Because there's a lot of money out there and there's just only so many places you can put it. I mean, is that part of the reason for the inflation of asset prices? Yeah. What, what happens is, is the stimulus works its way through the economy and eventually finds its way into asset prices one way or another. So the person who's running the business who generates extra profits because there's more demand eventually now has more money in their pocket to go and buy a house or buy a car or invest in stocks. So eventually, even if the average person may not be investing or may not participate in the average in the, this asset price inflation through their spending, eventually it will find its way back into assets. Yeah, it's interesting. It, you know, if you had a home right now that was like perfectly placed, like right outside of a city with more space or there is high demand, you could sell it for like a nice premium and then you've got money. If you were just only buying real estate, you'd probably be like, ah, I'm not sure I want to now go pay a premium on a real estate property. And so maybe I take that money and I put it elsewhere. Yeah. Or you split your hand and you invest some of it in the stock market and some of it in another maybe smaller piece of real estate. But the point is that the question now to, to bring it back to the, to the stock market is, well, if we've been living in a low inflation environment for a long time, what happens is, is that the stock market, investors in the stock market will value future cash flows very highly. Because if inflation is low, the opportunity cost of your money is low, which means you can wait a long time for a company to become profitable, right? So this is like the, the Amazon example is like the textbook one where it took them 20 years to start to generate any real earnings. But the reason why they did that was because they were constantly reinvesting their cash flow into building the business, building the logistics infrastructure, building the warehouses, building the... AWS server centers and reinvesting constantly and not letting any of that money flow back to shareholders. But they were doing that intentionally. And because they did that, now they have this behemoth because they were constantly reinvesting instead of paying out dividends. And so when inflation is low, the market is willing to allow companies to do that. And so you see, that's the reason why pretty much every tech company you see that's publicly traded is not generating any earnings or they're generating lower earnings than you would think that a software company could earn because they're investing in the future. But what happens suddenly is if inflation is higher for a long time, people stop having that level of patience because then they can say, well, I can go buy bonds at 5%. And so why do I want to wait for your company to compound its earnings over 10 years when I can just go get cash flow over here with a risk-free bond or you know some other lower risk asset. And that's because in terms of combating inflation, what happens is that interest rates should rise and therefore give people other lower risk options to get paid on their money. That's right. I mean, interest rates will rise one way or the other. Either the Fed will raise them or the rates, the prevailing rates on bonds in the liquid markets will rise accordingly. And so that's a really interesting 
point to bring up because there's a bit of a disagreement in the markets today. And so what I was just explaining is how stock prices are falling or have fallen, especially growth stocks, because there's concern that we're going to have inflation for a while. And as a result, those stocks should actually be worth less than they have been when there's low inflation for the reason I just described, right? The opportunity cost is higher and therefore less people on the margin will want to own those long-term growth stocks. And the reason why there's that concern is there's concern that the Fed is going to raise rates or that bond rates are going to go up. And there's a concern that the Fed is going to basically say, we've had high inflation for too long and we need to do something about it and we need to raise rates. And a lot of the more sophisticated people in the market actually look at that and say that would be a very bad thing because they're looking through this short-term inflation shock and saying this is actually not a long-term issue. And so if the Fed raises rates, it's going to cause the economy to crash. And then that's when things actually get bad. What we should do is let this kind of flow through and not raise rates. And so, yeah, that's why the market has been reacting badly over the last couple of weeks because of the Fed chair Powell's comments recently about not using the word transitory anymore about inflation and, you know, tapering some of the stimulus more quickly. I mean, it makes sense, you know, when the headlines come out and say inflation's really bad, inflation's really bad. You know, the narrative to your point is it is a mixture of certain things that are happening, obviously, like supply chain being one of the biggest issues here, hence why costs are going up. And I mean, the Fed meeting is today. We're recording this before the Fed meeting. Do you think anything happens in that? Is this where they make some announcement? Either they're going to leave things unchanged or they're going to raise rates. That would be essentially the what people are waiting to hear. Right. And hence, the market is a little bit uncertain going into that meeting. Well, the market is always uncertain going into Fed meetings, I'll say that. But I don't think there's any expectations of rates being increased today. I think if, if the Fed came out and, and raised rates today, the market would have a, a massive sell-off because they would view that as uh, an unexpected change. Right now, if you look at just interest rate futures, the market is predicting rates will go up sometime in mid-2022. And so if that were to happen sooner, then that would be a, a not a good thing, at least in the short term, because of what I was just explaining. You know, people would actually see that as a knee-jerk reaction. People would also start to lose their faith or their view of the credibility of the Fed because they've been saying all summer long, this is a transitory thing, and then to suddenly change their tack on it. But one other thing I want to mention is what's actually happening in the bond markets which is obviously separate from the stock market and has kind of separate types of participants in it. Some people participate across both, but some people are mostly stock people and mostly bond people. And so the disagreement in the markets that I was describing to you a minute ago is actually that bond rates, 10-year bonds, are not actually increasing. So if we expect there to be significant inflation for a while, what would happen is bond rates would increase. And the Fed can't necessarily directly impact that. Like they can go out into the market and buy 10-year bonds to keep rates low, but they're not really doing that as much as they were. And so what actually happens is that's a free market rate. That's just based on what participants think rates should be for bonds. And so if we thought inflation was going to be high for a long time, bond rates would go up, but they haven't. And so that means one of two things. Either it means that inflation is transitory and all of this is just a bunch of you know, news headlines and, and discussion that is not actually going to end up becoming 
something that's sustained over the long term. Or it means that we will have inflation, but then what will happen is the Fed will come out and raise rates, and then we'll have a recession, and then that recession will unwind the inflation, and then we'll wind up back where we started, and rates should stay low. So it's very interesting because bond investors typically are right. They're usually the ones who are right about inflation. And so it's very interesting to watch what's happening in the bond market at the same time as all this stuff is going on in the stock market. And so you have to kind of try and reconcile what you're seeing in the inflation print, what the Fed is saying, what stocks are doing, what you can see in the interest rates in the bond market. If you can explain like how bond markets work really quickly, what does it mean when rates of bonds are high versus when they're low. Can you explain the mechanics behind that? There's a variety of different types of bonds. The bond market that I'm talking about is the sovereign debt or you know the treasury market in terms of the US. And so when you think about what bond investors are implying with their purchases and sales of treasury bonds, it's basically, I want to go into this market and I want to hold US treasury bonds because they're risk-free. And so basically the only risk that I'm exposed to, like the treasury is not going to default because for the time being, the U.S. can just print as many dollars as they want. And so they're always going to pay me back. They're always going to pay me interest. So I'm not taking any credit risk there, not taking any default risk. The only risk I'm taking on treasury bonds is what will inflation do? Because bonds price relative to the opportunity cost of owning other bonds. So for example, let's say I bought a bond and it's yielding 2%. And now there's another bond out there worth 5%. It's kind of like the meme with the guy who's looking at one. He's walking with his girlfriend. He's looking back at the other girl. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) It's the same thing. So if you are holding a bond with a 2% yield and then one comes out for 5%, you're suddenly thinking, oh, I want to have that one. And so what will happen is the 2% bond will sell off because people will sell those. And so the price will go down. And as bond prices go down, interest rates on those bonds go up because you're still paying the same amount of interest, but now on a lower principal balance. And so it's rates go up, prices go down, vice versa. And so now if inflation goes up, the interest rate that bondholders will demand for holding that bond will also go up. Because what that means is the real return on that bond goes down as inflation goes up. Because if the earnings power of my dollar goes away over time, then the actual interest that comes into my pocket for owning that bond is actually worth less in terms of spending power. And so those things net out. If inflation is 3% and my bond is yielding 5, I'm actually only netting 2% after inflation. So... Anyway, real yields technically are negative right now. If you look at, I don't know where the 10-year is right now. It's probably around 2%. But inflation was mid-single digits, at least year over year. That doesn't mean it has been sustained over that time period. But that would suggest that bondholders are willing, at least for a short period of time, to earn negative real yields on their bonds. Fascinating. And and, and generally, who are people that are owning U.S. Treasury, or who are groups or institutions that are owning, or countries that are owning U.S. Treasuries? Well, yeah, there's pretty much every country in the world holds U.S. Treasuries to some degree as part of their just reserve management. But think about large institutions in the U.S., pensions, endowments, foundations. They all use Treasuries as part of their strategy for managing their money. 
Obviously, the returns there are very low, but it's also very low risk. Increasingly, institutions will own less treasuries than maybe they had in the past because the rates are so low. But there are other groups like insurance companies that will hold lots of treasuries because they are able to match their liabilities if they have, for example, the plan to pay out. If it's life insurance, they know what the age of all of their insured are, and they know when it's likely that they're going to pay out upon their death. And so they can hold treasuries on their balance sheet that have the same maturities and rates as their liabilities do. And so there's a lot of uses for it. It's kind of like the safe haven. You know, if you don't want to hold stocks or some real estate or some other risky asset, you can just hold treasuries and at least earn something rather than holding cash. Well, speaking of risk and speaking of, you know, riskier assets, the crypto markets also seem to be volatile. But technically, when you compare them to the stock market, it's not as, you know, usually I think we've been used to crypto market volatility is pretty insane. I think at least with some of the, you know, with everything from like Bitcoin and Ethereum, we are seeing volatility anywhere from 10 to 20%, which is not like an insane amount in comparison to to past years or past cycles. But what's happening there? Because it seems like everyone is uncertain everywhere and we're having a little bit of volatility in all the markets. Yeah, well, the, the nature of financial markets is uncertainty. You know, you're basically trying to predict the future. You're valuing things based on their future cash flows. So, you know, there's never a time when it's not uncertain. I think what changes is people's anxiety about those uncertainties and their willingness to trade around them. And so I think crypto is, is incredibly volatile. And a big reason for that is that the markets are just thinner than traditional markets. And what I mean by that is there's less liquidity. There are fewer participants who are actively making a market in crypto prices generally. Now, obviously, Bitcoin and and Ether are different in that they both are pretty deep markets and they're pretty liquid, but they still have a lot of volatility. And a reason for that is a lot of people are, are hodlers. There's not, even though Bitcoin is worth close to a trillion dollars, I don't pay too much attention to the day to day mark, but a lot of that trillion dollars is actually not floating in the market. You know, it's actually a very small percentage of that because most people just hold it. And so as a result, large sales of Bitcoin can drive the price a lot. You've got another dynamic there too, which is leverage. So a couple of weeks ago is a Friday night, or at least a Friday night on the West Coast, and Bitcoin just had a massive sell-off. I think it was a 20% down in a number of hours. And the reason for that is just because of the leverage in crypto. So what happens is, you know, there's this, this concept called a collateralized debt position, which is basically where I say, okay, I'm going to put Bitcoin up and I'm going to borrow against it. And what a lot of people do is they buy more Bitcoin. So I put $100 worth of Bitcoin up, I borrow 60 against it. But what happens is if the Bitcoin price falls, my Bitcoin gets liquidated. And so if the price starts to fall and then I get liquidated, then what happens is whoever was holding my Bitcoin now has to go out in the market and sell it. And that causes the price to fall again. And then it causes this recurring process where people start getting liquidated all the way down. And so the price just, you know, the bottom falls out of the price. So, so would that be like a bunch of margin calls going off at the same time over the multiple accounts and multiple people? And it just drives the price down, down, down. 
Yes. And then also, you know, there's a lot of derivatives trading. And so derivatives are the same idea. You know, if you're buying a bunch of call options, typically what happens is someone else who's writing the call option for you has a offsetting position so that they're delta neutral, which is to say that if the price goes up and they have to pay you, you know, they're also buying or selling that position to ensure that they're not caught out. And so as prices go down, there's more selling and it's a self-reinforcing feedback loop until someone steps into the market and says, Bitcoin's down 20%, I'm going to start buying the dip. And that seems to be where we are right now, which is probably for a lot of people, I'll speak for myself, like when I see a pullback, it's not a big enough pullback for me to act on it simply because I've been there for a while. And you know, if it goes down 15, 20%, I'm not necessarily jumping at it but potentially waiting for something more or then being like, okay, I think maybe we've reached something where there's capitulation in the space and I'm going to start jumping in back now. Is that something to be considered? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think you're highlighting the key, one of the key differences between the crypto markets and traditional finance, which is that crypto is still so new. You know, Bitcoin, you could say the white paper was released in, in late 2009. So this is an 11, 12-year-old idea altogether. And Ethereum was in 2014, 2015. And now all of these alternatives, you know, like Solana and, and the rest uh, are even newer than that. Whereas in traditional financial markets, they've been around for hundreds of years. And so what's interesting about what you just said is, yeah, I remember talking to you in 2017, watching prices move when they were an order of magnitude cheaper, you know, in Bitcoin and Ethereum. And so we have a different perception of what volatility is because we've been through cycles before. And so when we see Bitcoin down 20% from 62,000 to 48,000, it's not really, it doesn't right. matter that much to us. Even though in, in percentage terms, it's significant, it's still 20x higher than, you know, when we've seen it before or 100x more for even right. before that. And so, What's interesting is there are people in the market who have that perspective, right? And then there are people in the market who have the perspective of having bought it in 2010 and they don't care at all to see the price move like this. But then there are people who bought it this summer at 50,000 who now are, you know, underwater in their price. Right. And so the time horizon that people have of observing the volatility here is very stratified. If you were to somehow look at the, when positions were entered into by the entire crypto market, there are very distinct layers of people who've come in at different times and have hodled or are trading or whatever. Whereas in traditional finance, it's much less so the case because it's not a new thing. So people have been doing that for a really long time. And when people entered financial markets and traditional finance and when they've exited is much less of a factor for the perception because you can look at history back to, you know, 200 years ago, if that makes sense. I think that's an excellent comparison and observation. It'd be the equivalent of like Apple being down a percent and a half on a down day and you're just kind of like, yeah, okay, who cares? But if it was like down 20, 30 percent, you'd be like, okay, this is potentially some type of opportunity here, which is always interesting. I think it, it just depends on on what you're looking at when you're comparing it to. And so, Renick, I want to thank you for giving us our end of the year recap on everything that's happening. And I guess I'd ask you, what are your predictions for, I guess, the early part of 2022? Or what do you hope to see happens? Well, I think that the most important thing that I could say about crypto 
is that it's prices will drive people to certainly pay attention to it and want to speculate on it. But the reason why I'm spending my time in it now and the reason why it's so interesting to me is because it is actually a very new and important innovation in the way that technology and financial markets work. And so what I would say is focus on what's actually being built and the real innovation, which takes time and and effort. It's not simple. But that's where really the most important investments will come from and where we're going to start to see things change and hopefully change for the better and, and be sort of the antidote to the FANG stocks that we see today kind of disrespecting our privacy and the rest. And maybe we can talk about that another time. But I think what I'd really like to see next year is, you know, I guess on the macro side, a little bit more clarity on what's happening on the, on the inflation front. I'd like to see the Fed stick to their guns and not have any knee-jerk reactions. You know, and that's obviously very politically driven too, you know, because now people are saying, oh, look at the Biden administration and how much they messed this up because we have inflation. And that's not what it is. But, you know, if you're Biden, you're looking at Powell and you're saying you better do something about this. And on the crypto side, it's just amazing the amount of innovation and, and the pace of new things that are being built. And whether we have a bear market next year or not in crypto, I really hope to see uh, people keep doing what they're doing and more really smart, talented people enter the space because I'm really excited about what's being built and where it's going to go. Awesome, man. Well, Rannick, thanks for being here and happy holidays to you. Same to you. Can't wait to chat next year. Likewise. All right, that's our interview. I want to thank my good buddy, Rennick Paley, for sharing his insights. Like I said, super smart guy. I'm excited to have him on future episodes to do these deep dives with us on the markets. And just want to wish you all a very, very happy holidays. Enjoy that time. Have a great new year. Thanks for joining us this year. I can't wait to share all the stuff we're working on for the next year. New podcasts, new episodes. I can't wait. Thanks for being on the ride with us. Make sure you're subscribed to the newsletter, thetalkmoney.com slash newsletter. Until next time.